Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Jiang Hong Min. He's a grad student in the Department of Genetics at Harvard Medical School. John, thank you for coming. Thank you for having me, Richard. So, John, tell me about your research. What are you working on? Uh, yeah, sure. I am working on heritable gene drives or CRISPR gene drives. And what that is, is um, so normally in lab, when you make a genetic modification to our organism using CRISPR or otherwise, that change is made in what we call somatic cells or cells that um, just exist and perform normal functions your body and is not heritable or does not pass on to uh, your children. And what I'm working on is a technology that makes permanent changes in the entire lineage of the organism so that both the organism we're doing the editing in, but more importantly, all of its offspring will inherit that change. Well, can you do an edit where it won't affect the, uh, you know, the, the entity itself, but only the offspring? Wouldn't that be uh, maybe more desirable? Yes, I guess that might be more desirable. With the limitation of current technology, what ends up happening is actually the edit will affect some portion of the organism we're working on. And then um, in all of the ops- offspring, it'll become super dominant and affect all the cells. So what is gene drive? Gene drive is a term coined by Alston Burt back in uh, the early 2000s, 2003, I won't say, and um, describes an even older um, natural phenomenon that scientists have discovered where a um, gene is able to, quote unquote, drive its own inheritance or push for its own inheritance inheritance by both finding unique sites of insertion in a given genome and then making duplicating making a copy of itself and then insert 
thing itself in that specific target sequence. Okay. So what kind of uh, heritable change are you considering? And is there a demand for certain things or are you just exploring whether it can be done? So right now we're still in the exploration phase. Technology has already been proven in that what I described can be done and has been done both in our lab as well as um, a number of labs around the world. What we are actively exploring in is um, both how how much genetic information can we include in these chain drive cassettes? And more importantly, how much control do we have in the heritability uh, of these chain drives? Namely, uh, can we control how many generations these drive elements gets passed on? And can we engineer in a stopping mechanism? Or does it just go on forever? Well, I mean, has this been tried in mouse models or any creature yet? Or uh, I know in I guess someone, some scientists in China had modified these two twins so that they wouldn't be susceptible to HIV. Yeah. I don't know the status of them or if they're, you know, the media is staying away from them or what it is, but, uh, are you, are you, do you know, I mean, I'm sure you know about it, but do you know if those, uh, those twins are okay or if anyone has been able to observe what's going on? I actually don't know if the twins are okay. From what I've read with the publications and what was done, I would say the twins are most likely healthy, but also the um, genetic modification most likely failed, or at least um, they're not very immune to HIV. How do you know if, if, if uh, I mean, does anyone know if, again, if the twins are healthy and if it's worked or, I mean, I don't know if it can be tested, you, know, you probably wouldn't want to test it, but. Right, exactly. And I think, I think it would be both difficult to test without running into huge ethical issues. And, uh, I think they it given the type of modification done because uh, the technology they used to edit those twins is a little bit late stage in a baby's development in that it would be virtually impossible using that technology to ensure you insert your gene into every single cell in the child. So most likely um, those twins are what we would call mosaic or they have um, some cells carrying the edit they engineered and some cells that do not. So whether or not they actually have have immunity to HIV would kind of be up to luck in terms of the number of cells they have that carry the antibody, carry the edit that they made, which is actually the removal of a cell surface antibody, and um, whether or not the proportion of cells that carry that edit is sufficient to grant immunity. So with the work that you're doing, again, what kind of uh, changes do you envision or which ones are you trying to uh, to make and what's your model? Right. So we are interested in non-human edits, mainly in fast reproducing organisms. And this would, I think the best example of how this might be useful is in something like um, the malaria carrying mosquitoes out in Africa. There are a number of labs that are working on using this technology to using a variety of genetic methods based on this technology to try to crash the uh, malaria carrying mosquito population. And they have moved to actively doing field trials 
in small populations of mosquitoes. And my research is focused on figuring out all of the potential things that might go wrong with uh, this gene drive technology, testing them in a rapidly reproducing organism. So our animal model of choice is C. elegans. There are these uh, little nematode worms. We also do mouse work because there are a number of um, groups interested in uh, expanding this technology into mice for pest control as well as um, localized population control. What's happening with mosquitoes so far? What's been done? They have been a small portion of a group of mosquitoes have been engineered in the laboratory to only produce male offspring so that you can imagine if they, uh, after a number of mating events with mosquitoes in the wild, if all offspring are going to be wet male, you're going to have this huge bias and eventually there won't be enough females around to sustain future populations. So that's something they're doing um, caged field trials in to both demonstrate the effect of this technology and um, hopefully do a full-scale release sometime in the near future, near future being the next decade or two. What are some of the unintended consequences that they're envisioning or they're like, ah, looks fine, we'll just do it? So that goes into a um, some of the major challenges in uh, doing gene dry work. We actually spend a lot, I would say the majority of the t- our time thinking about unintended consequences, engaging with um, both local um, stakeholders and the local community, as well as um, governments and environmentalists to try to figure out what potential outcomes there may be before releasing such a technology. And uh, some of the field trials are doing is very much a part of this as well. Um, through a small controlled field trial, you learn a lot about the behavior of these animals, how they interact with wild type species and help you build your model of um, what's likely to happen in the future. But the, I mean, the correct answer is we honestly know so little about the effects of human uh, intervention in natural systems is so that there's actually a lot that we don't know. So what, the, again, in mice, that's your model. What are you trying to affect? Like, how do you affect a heritable change? Do you, you know, work on what the gonad cells and uh, modify them or how does it work? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, We need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. So yeah, we do a modification directly in the gonad cells and eventually these um, gene drive carrying mice will be born. And uh, going from there, we just need to mate them with um, normal regular mice and then test 
if their offspring also carry the edit that we put in. And the interesting thing about our technology is because the um, genetic code for CRISPR is built in, once the entire cassette is expressed in the mouse, although, you know, the, the offspring, the next generation gets one copy of their genes from mom and the other copy from dad, just carrying one copy of gene drives is enough that when it activates, it will create a protein, the CRISPR protein complex in the offspring and go and edit the other normal copy of the gene so that all future generations will end up inheriting basically two copies of the gene drive gene. And how, that's, how far have you uh, taken this? Have you gotten to the point where you've worked on mice or, you know, where is it at in your research? We're at the part where we're mating the mice. Oh, so you'll know what in a month or two if it was inherited or how long? Uh, we know there. We know the first step is done; that they're heritable. Um, what my research is focused on is so this technology will have very limited use if all future mice will necessarily inherit this gene because we are we know so little about natural systems that we don't want to be so bold and just go out there and change the genetic makeup of an organism forever. So we're interested in engineering stopping mechanisms into um, these gene drives cassettes genetically so that say the gene drive effect will get weaker after 10 generations or 20 generations of mating events with wild type mice and yeah, so it, it will probably take another year or two for us to figure out if that's true, but uh, that's where we're well, at. How, do you, how does it get weaker? Is that through epigenetic change? You know, like uh, silencing of the change or how does it happen? Population collapse? We basically broke happen. apart the pieces of the CRISPR cassette um, so that they would be inherited separately in the genome. And uh, by doing that, eventually pieces get lost during successive mating events. And uh, statistically, you know, you can build statistic models around this on how quickly the pieces would get lost through successive mating events with wild type that don't carry these genes. And uh, now we're just um, doing the animal modeling to check against math work. Well, like in the mosquitoes, you know, the offspring are only male mosquitoes. Their breeding cycle, I'm sure, is you know, pretty short. So you right. get multiple generations really quickly, but if there's no females, you know, I don't know, what if the population collapses? You know, if the lifetime of a mosquito is super short, the population completely collapses. I mean, 10 generations may be too long, or for a mouse, it, it may be, again, too long or too short. The deactivation um, of it may not happen soon enough, depending on the change. If there's unintended consequences, you know, like right, how right, fast right. can it be reversed? And is there, you know, do you have to just let it happen naturally? Or are there ways you can intervene to stop it fast if it needs to stop? So the way we kind of get an estimate of how safe something like this might be is we look at population flow in nature. It's easy to model animal behavior and mating events in the wild, like uh, everything occurs in the same pool and each individual is free to interact with any other individual in the pool. But this is not true in nature, right? We tend to interact with our neighbors. Like even humans tend to date, you know, within their own school or within their own neighborhood and animals generally mate within a small local population that's easy to travel with. This is true for mosquitoes, for mice, and uh, just about any other animal. So by figuring out how um, these localized pools, whether or not it's like. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. 
mice who live in the same building or on the same city block or a mosquito that live near one local body of water, like a pond or something. How often that population mixes with the next population over, and the scale of the mixing, and by expanding that into larger populations, we can get an estimate how many generations it would take for us to actually crash the entire mosquito population. Well, I guess it would change the competitive landscape too if,、uh, if mating is local. How do you make you know if you affect a certain population around a certain pond as persistent and they crash? Mm-hmm. Other ones would come in and take over, but what if you don't want them to take over? What if there's something negative about them being there? Not only now do you have to try to restore the population, but now you have these competitors that are entrenched in there. It may make it difficult. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, the thing is, there are hundreds of mosquito species out there. Only six of them, more or less, bite. Only six of them that we know of bite humans and transmit disease. And of those, only one is a major carrier of malaria, and another one's kind of a minor carrier. So we're only interested in getting rid of these two, or I guess the the major one, Anopheles, to begin with. And then,、uh, you know, I guess if a less harmful species takes over this niche, it's not such a add such a huge human、uh, cost to human health and well being. Well, you said natural populations are not well understood, so not harmful to people. But you know, do we know what role, for instance, mosquitoes serve in their ecosystem? Maybe there's a lot of hidden. You know interactions that if they were removed could be、uh, a problem, even if they were replaced by a different species of mosquito. Yeah, I agree. And、um, I mean, to be clear, this is、uh, the mosquito project is not the focus of my work. But the thing is, this goes back to the precautionary principle, right? Should we shouldn't do any intervention until we understand the consequences of. Our actions, but the one key assumption of the precautionary principle is that the current state of being is okay and acceptable. And the current state being is about four hundred thousand people die, mostly in sub-Saharan Africa, of malaria every year. Ninety percent plus of those being children, and if prolonging that is okay indefinitely, then yes, we would spend the time to figure out all of these negative consequences. So I think at some point we have to slowly take action, be as careful as possible, and you know also acknowledge that inaction is not a state that we consider is okay. Yeah, it makes sense. So is your focus currently on mice, and what would be the changes that you'd want to make in them? And how would that benefit、uh, things? My focus is、uh, mainly on the genetic mechanics and how much change we can control over these gene drive cassettes. So, like you said, at the end of the day, right? We want some stopping mechanism to the gene drive. Should we observe something going wrong after a release event in the ecosystem? So, I'm interested in like, can we build in build in signaled stops? That where like we spray a fairly mild chemical, and all of these modified mosquitoes or mice would drop dead or stop having babies or something like that. Or can we build in a timer so that our first gene drive release will only function for ten generations and give us time to assess the wider environmental ramifications before we move on to a larger scale release, something like that. But again, what what changes are you trying to reduce mice populations in certain areas, or what are the changes? We're interested in localizing 
the changes to smaller areas so that it won't go global. So you can do something like mouse population control in downtown New York or London or something like that. Or locally, we have a problem with mice actually being the primary reservoir for the bacterium that causes Lyme disease. So we're interested in seeing if we can build some sort of immunity in the mice to actually crash the the likelihood of ticks picking up the Lyme bacteria from biting these mice. So yeah, these are the type of changes I'm interested in. Okay. Uh, do you have any sense of which changes are easier to accomplish? And, you know, which ones, uh, you know, yes, you can make the changes, but the organism just, you know, falls apart. Is there any uh, correlations or trade-offs that you've observed yet? Actually, no. Our genomes are huge, right, on the order of billions of base pairs. And the types of changes I'm trying to insert in is uh, very, very small um, compared to that on the order of maybe 10,000 base pairs or so. So from that perspective, I actually haven't observed any limitations. The limitations actually on the human manufacturing and in terms in terms of how big of a genetic cassette we can make in the laboratory and proper really introduce it to the mouse. The organism can take it up fine. Well, again, has anyone looked to see if there's trade-offs? In terms of one type of change versus another and and uh, the benefits or, I guess, detriments to the house of the organism and so on? Right, any detriments to the organism, yeah. Not in this field specifically, but that's because we have the benefit of um, multiple decades of mouse genetic research where the wider research community has introduced changes to just about every location known to man the mouse. Yeah, that's right. I guess you can custom order lab mice that have any knockout you want. and uh... Yeah, so there are definitely places that you shouldn't mess around in the mouse genome, and there are certain changes that are very detrimental. But um, I have the benefit of great researchers in the past who've you know done all these things. Well, if you look at all the changes they've done in mice, what are some of the... Uh... The correlations, like you said, there's some places you shouldn't mess with, but you know, are there any changes that actually benefit the mouse and, you know, lives longer or it breeds more? Or, you know, are, are there negative correlations, positive correlations? Like, I know it's a general question, but in the landscape of uh, mouse genetics, is there anything that jumps out at you that's interesting that may have a bearing on your work? I wouldn't say have a a strong bearing on my work, but I have um, seen a number of mutations that actually make the mouse more resilient or increase their longevity. And there are a number of researchers that are chasing after these leads to see if they can be transferred to humans. But alas, we understand the mouse genome actually far better than we do our own. Well, I'm sure it's been uh, studied studied tremendously, yeah. Okay. So what what do you think is going to be possible you know, in the near term with your research and what's going to take, you know, a much longer time to accomplish shipping. I think near term is still very much in the laboratory. I think we can make tremendous progress with mouse. I think we can make tremendous progress with um, just about any other pest organism or, you know, organisms that we like to modify and kind of do population control with in a laboratory setting. What's going to take much longer is figuring out what is the reasonable level of um, understanding of the greater environmental impact for genetically modifying these organisms and uh, what are kind of the, the key check marks that we need to tick off before even starting a field trial for any of these things. I think that will take multiple decades to come. 
Oh, wow. So it's, you think it's going to be decades before uh, this is actually introduced in mice? Or what, what timeline do you see? I think mosquitoes will be within the next decade-ish. Mice, probably two decades. And I think most of the other organisms will, will be much longer. Okay. Actually, I think the mice might be faster than that, just because we understand them very well, at least in the urban setting. It's actually funny. I've occasionally had some really interesting conversations with um, pest control people, and they have wild stories about mice behavior. Oh, what do you mean? What's an example? Sometimes they'll, uh, you know, in large buildings, there's always like a loading dock where sometimes catering groups will bring the food up in carts through that path. And um, mice will always know exactly the path that these carts travel because they leave behind a trail of, I guess, grease spots and smell and other things. And they'll follow the trail up elevator shafts to these, you know, meeting spaces. And yeah, they're very smart. I remember years ago in New York City, my dad worked like in the 12th story of a building Mm -hmm. and uh, we left out food. And an hour later, there were ants swarming all over it. And I couldn't believe that ants not only were in New York City, but they got up to like the 12th floor of a building. So maybe they were in the building the whole time. It's crazy. Oh, yeah. And they make nests in our buildings. Ants, mice, rats. Yeah. So I guess they're everywhere, you know. Well, very good. Well, John, what's the best way for people to find out more about your research? Where can they go? They can go to the my lab's website with uh, particularly Professor Kevin Espel's website. So Sculpting Evolution at MIT. And um, yeah, there's lots of good information for both my research and um, all my lab mates research on there. Okay. Well, very good. Well, John, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Richard. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.